Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, in each episode, I examine about 100 pages of text from America's greatest writers and then give my thoughts and commentary. In this episode, we wrap up Frank Norris's McTeague. McTeague is Frank Norris's definitive interpretation of greed and its ability to destroy human happiness. It parallels very nicely with his previous novel, which wasn't published until after he died, but it was written uh, when he was still in college, Vandover and the Brute, which uh, looks at how sloth and wasted talent can destroy life. In the first 200 pages of the novel, we are introduced to McTeague, a dentist who married a woman, Trina, who won the lottery. For the rest of the novel, the lottery winnings are an odd sort of MacGuffin. For Trina, they represent security. Now, McTeague has a more practical vision of the use of these funds, but throughout the marriage, the money remains saved, despite McTeague's losing his practice, and the family needing to move to smaller apartments and into progressively worse conditions. As we reach the climax of this novel, the marriage is on its last legs, and both characters are close into descending into madness due to their conflicting views of the small family fortune. We left off on chapter 15, so let's work our way through the final 100 pages of Frank Norris's McTeague. Chapter 16. McTeague has responded to the loss of his job with depression and idleness. The family is living off the income from Trina's work, which is making toys for kind of nose art just toy sets. And they're also making money from the small interest from the $5,000 in lottery winnings. Uh, McTeague, for a while, after losing his practice as a dentist, did work for a while making dental equipment, but he lost that job due to uh, just kind of layoffs. McTeague was never much of a drinker. He's taken up the habit with greater frequency. Norris describes him as a bit too simple to become a drunkard, though. This is on page four, or 477 in the Library of America version. But McTeague never became a drunkard in the general received sense of the term. He did not drink to excess more than two or three times in a month, and never upon any occasion did he become maldwin or staggering. Perhaps his nerves were naturally too dull to admit of any excitation. Perhaps he did not really care for the whiskey and only drank because Hesse and the other men at Freenas did. Trina could often reproach him with drinking too much. She never could say that he was drunk. The alcohol had an effect for all that. It roused the man, or rather the brute in the man, and now not only roused it, but goaded it to evil. McTeague's nature changed. So yes, while he doesn't become a drunkard, he does become a bit of a, um, a worse husband, to say the least. Uh, this drinking begins to encourage spousal abuse as he starts using violence to get money from his wife. This abuse is rather strange as he enjoys pinching and then later on biting Trina. While the dentist McTeague uh, was a, while he was a McDen, while he was a dentist, McTeague could actually pull teeth with his bare hands. So he's a very strong man, and Trina expresses fear throughout the novel at just the size and power of McTeague. So it's a lot, uh, a little bit disconcerting when you hear these scenes about this spousal abuse. Um, 
The neighbor, Maria Macapa, is married to a, a fence, a kind of recycler of, of just goods picked up from the street as well, uh, named Zerkov. He's taken to also beating his wife. Uh, it's for a very different reason, though. Um, Zerkov has become addicted to stories from Maria's childhood about golden plates in her ancestral home. Maria claims she forgot about those stories and refuses to tell them anymore. And Zerkov, angry at losing this important part of his life, starts to beat his wife. Maria and Trina will then share stories of their husband's abuse. McTeague wants money for, for drinking. Zerkov wants stories of gold plates. Um, at the end of the chapter, the McTeagues get news that Maria was murdered by Zerkov. So that family is ended in, in violence over greed. Uh, that's a common theme in this novel. The only bright spot in this chapter is that Miss Baker and Old Grannis, two other neighbors uh, of the McTeagues, are getting closer together. Like the other characters, they are hoarders. Uh, Old Grannis hoards pamphlets and kind of newspaper clippings and books that he forms into kind of republishes and repackages, and Miss Baker just like shoes. But they're able to start to put a life together by setting aside their idiosyncratic desires. Chapter 17. This chapter is all about Miss Baker and Old Grannis. It is Norris's thesis on what is more important than greed. The key here is that the Grannises are able to set aside, or Old Grannis is able to set aside his obsessive hobby of binding pamphlets into books, choosing instead to spend time with, with Miss Baker. Page 492. Oh, I thought you were binding your books tonight, said Miss Baker suddenly. And you look tired. I thought you looked tired when I last saw you. And a cup of tea, you know. It, that, that does you so much good when you're tired. But you weren't binding books? No, no, returned old Grannis, drawing up a chair and sitting down. No, I, the fact is, I sold my apparatus. A firm of booksellers has bought the rights of it. Aren't you going to bind to books no more? exclaimed the little dressmaker, a shade of disappointment in her manner. I thought you always did about four o'clock. I used to hear you when I was making tea. So that part of their life is over. And here's how the chapter ends. It's kind of sweet. Um, it, it kind of ends the story of these two characters before we get to the really dark part of the novel. But this is on page 493. After they spoke a little, after that they spoke a little, the day lapsed slowly into twilight, and the two old people sat there in the gray evening quietly, quietly, their hands at e in each other's hands, keeping company, but now with nothing to separate them. It had come at last. After all these years, they were together. They understood each other. They stood at length in the little Elysium of their own creating. They walked hand in hand in the delicious garden where it was always autumn. Far from the world and together they entered upon a long retarded romance of their commonplace and uneventful lives. Within the bleakness of the rest of the story, this is the single bright point we get. Chapter 18. McTeague is still not capable of finding work. Uh, meanwhile, Trina is working harder and harder at making toys and saving as much as she can. They move into an even worse apartment. Some of the last remnants of McTeague's earlier life as a dentist disappear. The golden tooth he's been using as a table, this was the previous sign outside of the dental parlors. Um, but that is, is also, he tries to sell that to an, another dentist. Trina also demands that he sells his little canary, which is in a a golden cage. And this is an important metaphor in the story. It's this canary trapped within this, this gilded cage. Realizing that he cannot get more money out of Trina by force, McTeague simply steals her cash savings and leaves. 
Later, Trina learns that she has blood poisoning from her work with the paints because she's been working so hard at making these Noah's Ark toys, um, working longer hours, and she's finding that the, the paint she's been using is actually, I guess, some kind of lead or some kind of arsenic, some, some poison. It gets into her fingers, and she's informed by the doctor that she'll need to have her fingers amputated. Trina hears about this and is actually only worried about her work. It's actually a horrifying moment when you realize that Trina more, cares more about the fact that she won't be able to work than the fact that her fingers are going to be chopped off. Chapter 19. Trina try, takes to converting her savings into gold so she can have this physical representation of her wealth. She has lost her husband, who has left her. She needs something physical to be attached to. Um, and much of her, the love she felt for her husband was a kind of a reflection of this need for a physical presence. She eventually takes, she starts taking out a little bit at a time and the banker's like, what are you doing? Why, why are you taking it out just a little bit here and there? So eventually she withdraws all of the money. McTeague comes, still comes by to demand money from Trina from time to time. His resentment over the $5,000 lottery winnings begins to overwhelm him and he becomes obsessive. The dentist went away from, this is a quote again, the dentist went away from his bootless visit to his wife, shaking with rage, hating her with all the strength of a crude and primitive nature. He clenched his fists till his knuckles whitened. His teeth ground furiously upon one another. Ah, if I had told you once, I'd make you dance. She had $5,000 in that room while I stood there not 20 feet away and told her I was starving and she wouldn't give me a dime to get a cup of coffee with. Not a dime to get a cup of coffee. Oh, if I once get my hands on you. His wrath strangled him. He clutched at the darkness in front of him, his breath fairly whistling between his teeth. In a sense, he's almost driven to insanity over this money. He eventually gets a job at a music store, and while there, finds his concertina, which was sold. It's his favorite instrument, um, and he wants to buy it back, but he lacks the funds. Knowing that Trina sold it, he rushes to her. She's now living in a kindergarten where she doesn't have to pay as much rent. He demands money from her. In a confrontation, he savagely beats Trina, steals her gold, and leaves her for dead. And her death actually is one of the more depressing I have ever come across in American uh, literature. This is on page 526. Trina lay unconscious just as she had fallen under the last of McTeague's blows, her body twitching with an occasional hiccough that stirred the blood a pool of blood in which she lay face downward. Towards morning she died with a rapid series of hiccoughs that sounded like a piece of clockwork running down. And then in the, at the end of the chapter, the children of the kindergarten find her dead in the in the in the in the in the, in the, in the kindergarten. Chapter twenty. Sometimes later, McTeague is traveling around evading the police. He takes a job as a miner. Now this is a very interesting turn. It is too late to save him or his wife, but it seems that this is something he is good at. It was his original job before he became a dentist. He actually became a dentist by following a, a kind of a, a dentist at a miner's camp when he was working as a miner and he learned some skills. Um, that's one reason he never had a, a license. He never went to dental school, but he got the skill kind of working with miners. He goes back to becoming a miner and he's, he's really good at it. And it, the job even seems to match much of the materialism of the McTeague family. After working for a while, though, he gets a feeling that he's being chased and leaves. And he, he leaves the camp only two days before the police get there. Uh, there's kind of a, a slight 
subtext of the supernatural in the final chapters here where McTeague is able to kind of keep one step ahead of the police. Maybe it's just kind of a, a sense he gets or just luck, but uh, it's presented here as a kind of sense he gets that um, the police are coming. Chapter 21, McTeague is easy prey for the police. He First, he has a canary, uh, which he carries around with him, and he's a very large man. He has the general goal of getting to Mexico, but he must first pass through the deserts. For the time being, he works a gold claim with a man named Cribbins. And we see yet another example of something that McTeague would have been good at. He again feels that he's in danger and has to leave, needing to abandon a claim that he imagines may be worth millions of dollars. So we see here, for the sake of $5,000 and a grudge with his wife, he sacrificed you know, a, a lifetime of, of riches. Um, if he had just abandoned his wife, went to the mines... Uh, and work these claims, he may have ended up a rich man, not hunted by the police. While traveling through the desert on his way to Mexico, he's confronted by his old friend Marcus. And if you have not listened to the first two episodes, Marcus had a long grudge against McTeague for marrying the woman he wanted to, to marry and refusing to share the lottery and winnings with them. He also was responsible for destroying McTeague's career as a dentist. Chapter 22. This is the last chapter of the novel. We find out how Marcus learned that McTeague was a wanted man and how he joined a posse to find him. Marcus eventually goes off on his own in hopes of getting the gold for himself. He recklessly enters a desert without enough provisions, assuming that McTeague would have water of his own. The plan turns out to be a disaster. After tracking down McTeague, uh, they, they're, they're kind of traveling together now. Uh, Marcus has a gun and is threatening McTeague, but they kind of become companions. Uh, just for the sake of escaping the desert. They eventually lose McTeague's mount and the water supplies. Now, assuming they will die, they begin to fight over the gold. In the fight, McTeague kills Marcus, but not before Marcus is able to put handcuffs on McTeague. Now, McTeague in this situation can only wait to die of thirst and exposure. The final image of the novel is the canary in this guilted prison dying. So that is the novel. That is Frank Norris's McTeague. It is a brutal read. The decline of the characters is so unnecessary. At times it's really bizarre. But I suspect that Norris thought that the profit lust of American society was no less bizarre than the behavior of his characters. Now in the next episodes, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about naturalism, the, the kind of the literary field, the literary genre that Norris attached himself with. It, generally in naturalism, you have this idea that there's these unnatural, or not unnatural, natural forces that affect the characters and kind of fate them, doom them. They're really unable to escape these overwhelming forces that surround him. That's really a strong theme in the upcoming novel, the one we'll look at in the next episode, The Octopus. In this novel, though, you really get the sense that although there are these external forces affecting the characters and kind of trapping them to a certain degree of fate, they're really avoidable. It's kind of that way with Vandover and the Brute, too. It's, it's not quite clear to me that these characters could have not escaped their fate. Um, anyways, um, it seems to me that Norris is making a telling a story here about the, the profit lust, the gold lust of American society at large. The greed here, in other words, is presented as a metaphor for American capitalism. But rather than a tale of simple exploitation, we find a story where people's own commitment to wealth contributes to their own suffering. Yes, exploitation exists. But it's not really on display in this novel very acutely. People here choose suffering. They choose misery. They choose broken families. And they choose violence, violence rather than simply accepting life 
accepting their relationships, accepting solidarity with one another, and, and, and just living their life, I guess. The characters are very well developed, and you understand them, uh, mostly. I mean, there are unfortunate characters, most famously Zerkoff, uh, who is kind of the, the best example we have of Frank Norris's blatant anti-Semitism. But most of these characters are pretty well developed, and you do get in their heads a little bit, and you suffer as you see their foolish choices. And you, when you see how pointless their suffering is, you, you actually do feel for them. Now, we as a society are not that far from that the characters described in this novel. Today, America is miserable while surrounded by plenty. We have the wealth to ensure that everyone has homes, clothing, food, education, and health care. And even if you were to provide that for everyone, we would still have the largest um, economy in, in the world. It's something the U.S. economy is something like $18 trillion. We can provide that and still have trillions left over for people to compete about it, compete over in the marketplace. We are in the position of Trina and McTeague, cutting programs that poor rely on to save a few millions while we are sitting like smog, the dragon on a mountain of wealth. So that, that kind of makes, a, for me, a rather depressing um, commentary on American society and how, f- how little we've, we've gained since uh, 100 years ago when, M- when McTeague was written. Now, here's the part of the podcast where I, where I like to go over some of the major themes of the book. Uh, my goal in this part of the podcast is as each novel ends or each work ends, I like to highlight some of the major themes that are reflected in that work. And the goal here long term is to start to create an index or kind of a, an overall uh, lexicon of American literature. So we'll have be able to compare and contrast themes that show up in different different works. Um, so one of these themes certainly is capitalism, and I just sort of referred to that. Um, American capitalism is put on display in this book. The greed of uh, American industrial capitalism is criticized, and it's, it's criticized through the choices of these characters. Um, the people suffer to save. They suffer to, uh, despite having resources. Um, there's not the clearest picture of exploitation as there is in Vandover and the Brute, where you see characters really taking advantage of each other. But uh, there is this kind of profit motive. This greed is at the heart of this story. Um, Another theme is education and the professions. Um, Professionalism seems to play a role in class conflict. It's McTeague was an effective dentist. He didn't have a degree. He didn't go to school, but he was doing his job. He had a client base. He wasn't hurting people. He he seemed to be a decent dentist, at least for that kind of day-to-day dental needs of people. Um, Did McTeague need to go to school? Did he need to become a professional? I I would say no. Um, That said, I I probably don't want to send my own family members to a, or or go myself to a dentist who's not certified. But here we see a little bit that there's there's kind of a class conflict here between the professionals and kind of the the everyday practitioners. Um, Another theme is work and the work ethic. Uh, The last time we saw this come up maybe was, was in Taipei where the work ethic was being criticized by Herman Melville um, for being one of the major differences between life on the Pacific Islands and the life on the American whaling ship and in America more broadly. Here we see the work ethic really lived out through through the character of Trina, um, who constantly is saving money despite having resources available to have, to have different options in her life. And she works very hard, working so hard she eventually almost kills herself. I mean, she starts to need to lose her fingers she's 
afflicted with this um, pain poisoning. Um, and eventually her greed and her sepsis saving leads to resentment and breaking up of her family and eventually her death. Um, so the criticism of the work ethic is here. It's a kind of an unescapable thing. And as someone who has a bit of a work ethic myself, despite um, maybe not having the most uh, stable career, um, you know, I can I can feel the frustration of, of, of feeling that need to work to to have meaning in life. Another theme, anti-Semitism. Now, this is not a theme of the novel. Frank Norris is not critiquing anti-Semitism, but he is an anti-Semite. Um, and this is displayed very strongly in the character of Zirkoff. Um, if you want to hear more about this, go back to the first episode that I on McTeague where I kind of lay out that character and, and try to discuss it. In my view, it's un unnecessary for Zirkoff to be a Jew for the story to work. Um, it does have a thematic role. The, the death of Maria Makapa by Zirkoff is a parallel to the death of Trina by McTeague. Um, they're kind of those two families are in the same situation where greed is at the heart of their relationships. However, it's not really necessary for him to be a Jew. My only hesitant defense of Norris on this point is that Zirkoff is not even the worst character in the novel. I mean, there are more greedy and uh, more vicious characters in the novel, at least by the end. Um, so um, I guess it can be debated. But yeah, it's certainly his anti-Semitism is on display in that novel, in that, especially in that character, I mean. Another theme, family. Um, yeah, we, we spent the first part of this podcast really focusing on, on Melville, and his, he doesn't have families really in his early stories, um, at least. And then we had Vandover and the Brute, in which uh, there's not really much family either. It's about a young man before he uh, can develop a family. He actually loses the chance at a family. Here we, we have family life, and of course it's not a pretty picture of family life. Uh, Trina's love for McTeague seems to be based on the need to have something material, uh, physical. Um, it, it seems to be greed-based as well. McTeague also wants possession, and Trina is seen by McTeague to be yet another possession he controls. There's very little intimacy between the two characters, except from, uh, you know, at a few moments. But generally, it's a pretty hostile and possessive relationship. So it's a negative look at family um, and, and, a, and a critique of it. In fact, there's really no healthy family here until we get to Old Grannis and Miss Baker um, coming together. Another theme, uh, immigration. Um, yeah, immigration. Uh, this story is set in San Francisco, and we do have a window into some of immigrant life, uh, mostly with the Sepes. Trina Sepe is the daughter of German immigrants. And we see how American popular culture was reflecting the needs of immigrant communities. This is seen when they go to a variety show and um, Trina's mother gets really worked up and excited over hearing yodeling, uh, which reminds her of her home country. It's just subtly hinted at, but immigration um, is a theme. Um, there's other characters who are immigrants too. Zirkoff uh, is, I guess, implied to be an immigrant, although I don't think I have direct text on that um, at hand. Tied to this, uh, what I was just saying is public amusements. That's another theme, I think. Uh, we got a really nice scene. It's almost a whole chapter long in which the characters go to a variety show, and it's just a nice little piece of Americana shoved into the novel. We also have the very public wedding feast, McTeague's wedding feast, which is another really nice moment. It, it's kind of sweet, um, and, and it's before the no novel gets really um, bleak. 
another theme, uh, the industrial economy of the West. This really comes up at the end of the novel when we see McTeague go to, well, I guess he's going east from San Francisco, but it's kind of in the industrially uh, mining economy of the West. Uh, he works at a mining camp, a capitalist mining camp for wages. Later on, he takes on the job as kind of a, an independent speculator trying to to find gold or find riches. Uh, this, is, of course, was a big part of the economy of the West in the later 19th century, uh, a big source of migration to the West, um, and it's there. We, so we got a little bit of a window into that, that part of American economic history. Next, next theme, I'm sorry, I got a, quite a few here for this book, um, political radicalism, socialism in general. The character that really ex uh, reflects a, a window into late 19th century American socialism is Marcus. Marcus is presented as a character who kind of hoards resentments. He is constantly angry about things that happen to him. Um, he's the kind of radical, maybe you've met this kind of person, who is able to repeat the slogans he sees, he or she sees in a pamphlet, but really doesn't have any deeper appreciation of, of the issues. He's kind of just able to parrot what others say. Um, maybe the equivalent of someone forwarding a Facebook uh, meme or something. Um, yet, through this act of kind of repeating these slogans, he becomes more and more hostile. And he experiments with radical organizations. So perhaps we have a bit of a, a questioning or a critique by Frank Norris about if socialism is a way we can escape uh, this kind of greed in American capitalism. Because uh, Marcus, although a political radical at times, ends up just being as greedy as the other characters. In fact, um, reaching his death because he wants the same gold that Trina and McTeague wanted to get their hands on. And a final theme of this book is, is spousal abuse. Uh, again, because we haven't looked at families before, we haven't had a chance to really get uh, at this theme of, of domestic violence within the family. Maybe I should just group this up with, with family. Um, Several relationships, well, two, I mean two relationships, uh, Trina and McTeague, and then uh, Maria and Zerkoff are both abusive relationships, and they both end with the death of, of the woman. Well, that should do it. Um, that's, so we're done with McTeague. Um, if you can think of any other important themes I missed, do not hesitate to make a comment on this post or to write me. I love hearing from listeners and fellow readers. My email address is 100pagescast at gmail.com, um, or you can just leave the comments uh, at um, the, on iTunes or on Podbean. In my next episode, we will begin the third and final of Frank Norris's novels that are collected in this library um, of America edition. He wrote several more books in a short career, but only three were published in the Library of America edition of his works. Um, if, if any others are published in the future, perhaps we'll get to them. But for now, we can look forward to his masterpiece of naturalism, The Octopus. Well, thank you for listening, and I will see you in 100 pages. She's only a bird. She's only a bird in a gilded cage. A beautiful sight, a beautiful sight, a beautiful sight, a beautiful sight to see. I said a beautiful sight to see You may think that she's happy And free from all care